Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as a part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Well, it's a beautiful, uh, sunny day here in Charlottesville. It's finally starting to feel like spring. And um, we have a good show coming up for you. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Elliot Robinson, the news editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Emily Hayes, a news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And we're going to talk a little bit about Opportunity Zones. Emily, can you get us started? Yeah. So first, I'm going to tell you about a hotel Uh Second Hyatt House is coming to the shops at Stonefield. The Albemarle County Architectural Review Board approved this potentially six-story hotel on Monday. But what I find really interesting is what you just mentioned. It's in an opportunity zone, and that helped make the deal happen. So opportunity zones were part of this 2017 Federal Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. They're intended to revitalize low-income communities by reducing taxes for investments in those communities. There are four opportunity zones in Charlottesville and Almarle together. These are some of the areas include the sort of a southern downtown area with Friendship Court uh, is there and some public housing as well as the X Park. Um, there's a couple of other spots around Cherry Avenue um, where the Southwood development is in Almarle and then the shops at Stonefield, sort of this rio district. Um, now, Stonefield does meet the criteria for a low-income uh, census tract, and the reason why Almoral chose these areas um, and why Charlottesville also chose these areas, I think, is that there are plans available. They've already done the community engagement for what the community wants there. So there, there's some, some rules in place for what can go on. Yes, and uh, we're mentioning with Stonefield is that part of the requirements is that the census tracts have to have either 20% of its residents living below the poverty line or the median income is 80% less of the surrounding areas. And Stonefield was able to squeeze in under those requirements. So it isn't an opportunity zone, but walking around it, it doesn't seem like it would be included as one. Yeah, that definitely caught me a little bit off guard when I saw that was included. But this 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act could potentially help with the Friendship Court redevelopment as well, right? They could. We we sort of don't the thing about this is we don't really know what the effects will be, but Friendship Court is in one of the opportunity zones, so it, it might make a difference. There's also another update about Friendship Court that I thought you might be interested in. So this is affordable housing neighborhood. It has 150 townhomes, I think, basically supported by these federal vouchers. So it's in the process of redevelopment. And when it redevelops, all of the residents, they're all going to meet the federal definition of low income. This sort of is an update to an ongoing conversation about who is the redevelopment for. Redevelopment is definitely necessary. I think you guys maybe have talked to Jordy Yeager about this in the past. He did a really big article about Friendship Court for us. There's a plan to add 300 units as part of the redevelopment. 
and they would mostly be higher income levels than the current residents. Current residents have sort of an average income of $14,000 a year. Residents have asked for this mixed income approach, but there are concerns. They've asked for it because they want to create a ladder of housing and if when their incomes increase, which is, you know, they're all hoping for some economic mobility in their futures. Some of them are already experiencing that. And it would also eliminate the stigma that current residents face, hopefully, about what their address is and, and maybe they're not getting some jobs because of the, their address. Previously, they planned not to cap the highest income. And there was some concern, um, for example, from Mayor Nakia Walker that this would lead to displacement of current residents, like a cultural displacement where the higher income residents would have more power because of their income and would maybe call the police more often on current residents or call child protective services just out of a sort of cultural misunderstanding and racism, possibly. That doesn't quite seem to be the reason why they have made this change. Sort of the people who've been involved in planning it, which includes residents and also members of the Piedmont Housing Alliance that's um, in charge of the redevelopment, they're responding to also a tax, a sort of tax credit program that is the main funding for affordable housing across the country. And it changes the rules about like what kind of mixed income you can have in a mm -hmm. development and balancing the sort of factors the residents decided, okay, this isn't so much of a difference if we go from sort of just above the low income threshold federally mm -hmm. to just below. And that threshold is 80% of area median income, which is around $50,000. Right, it's been a very complicated process of them getting all of the tax credits together. And they got pretty close to the deadline of getting all of the approvals they needed from the city, because there was a series of votes in the planning commission level and the city council level to get these things settled with Friendship Court, and then also CRHA is working on similar credits for their for their developments on South First Street, and that required some things like waivers for their site plan and other technical aspects, but they were able to get everything in in time for the deadline, and they will know whether they've received the tax credits by May 31st. Well, those are a lot of updates on opportunity zones in Charlottesville. It will be certainly interesting to see what happens in a little under two months with that. Well, those certainly are a lot of updates with opportunity zones in Charlottesville. Thanks for coming on and sharing this week, guys. It'll be certainly interesting to see what happens in the next couple months with all these opportunity zones. Thanks for coming on, and I'm excited to hear more about these opportunity zones and possibly affordable housing next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Once again, that was Elliot Robinson, the news editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Emily Hayes, a news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out the more and read the latest at seavilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU and Tej FM are both the service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. 
And now for Nathan Moore speaking with Richmond-based reporter Peter Galaska. Well, today I want to talk about the New York Times and Washington Post. They both have lengthy stories about the uh, sort of strange state of stasis in Virginia politics after these scandals that just rocked the news cycle for a month or so earlier this year. Uh, New York Times headline says it just went poof. Um, What scandals are we talking about? What is going on? What it is, basically, is that um, Ralph Northam, a Democratic governor, was found to have a yearbook picture from medical school that showed uh, two masked people, and one was in blackface and the other was a clanner. And that came out, and he admitted it and then denied it. Then you had um, uh, Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, another Democrat, uh, ended up being accused by two women of sexual assault. And then lastly, Mark uh, Herring, the attorney general, admitted that he had also appeared in blackface. These are all unrelated, but they all came together at the same time. Uh, immediately, most of the Democratic establishment um, wanted Northam to resign, and he did not. And so uh, the, both the Post and the Times did stories that, uh, by apparently holding firm, laying low, and just doing routine gubernatorial stuff, that the um, crisis seems to have been passed. Now, it sort of isn't completely true, because this week the General Assembly met to go over some uh, leftover matters from the uh, short General Assembly session, and, of course, the scandals did come up again. They're not, they haven't gone anywhere. So, and there's been more news, of course, on the uh, Fairfax situation. Let's let's take a, a bit of a different tack. Then, where are we now exactly with these scandals? I mean, they're not gone, gone, and yet uh, they do seem to have very much diminished in terms of the public conversation. I would agree with that in the case of, of Herring and Northam. I think that's true. Uh, they've not gone away with Fairfax and the sexual assault because what's happened? You've had both women uh, accusing him have been on national TV. Um, they want um, some kind of investigation at the legislative level into Fairfax. Fairfax, meanwhile, has taken a polygraph on his own, supposedly passed it, and um, he's gone to prosecutors in Durham, North Carolina, and in Boston, where these alleged uh, assaults took place, and wants police there to investigate them. So um, that, you know, whether that happens, we don't know. It's very uncertain if the General Assembly will have some kind of so-called bipartisan investigation. That would be unprecedented. Um, and they sure didn't do it for Bob McDonnell, uh, governor who was accused and later convicted of uh, corruption, although the corruption was overturned by the Supreme Court. So that, that is the most serious of the, of the three, and it's still that's the one that's most, you know, explosive. On that one, actually, with the Justin Fairfax case, one of his accusers was on CBS earlier this week uh, telling right. her story. What, uh, what did we learn from that? What's the, what's the fallout? Well, the fallout is still, it really hasn't gone beyond, you know, one accusation where she said she was assaulted and Fairfax responds that their sexual activity was consensual. He said that in both cases it was. And so it's still, unfortunately, going back and forth with the he said, she said kind of mode. Um, This comes in the wake of a couple years of Me Too movement kind of things where very prominent people uh, in entertainment and the media um, and other places have been, you know, fired or left after being accused of sexual harassment. So what that means as far as the, the general run of things, by the way, Doug Wilder, first black governor of the state or anywhere, has also been accused of some kind of sexual harassment. Um, so on it goes. And uh, whether this is a turn in the whole movement nationally, I don't know. But that's something to watch for. 
So going back to uh, Ralph Northam in particular, uh, Northam and the Legislative Black Caucus both saying they're pretty pleased with the governor's work since the scandal during the session and, and since the session. He hit on a few kind of race-adjacent issues uh, to the degree that he could, given the budget and, and the bills that were before him, um, but not in a, a healer-in-chief sort of way. There's no no sort of Clinton-esque, uh, we're going to talk uh, talk through it as a, as a public. It was more just being a governor. Yeah. Uh, what what do you what's he what's he done? Okay. The first thing he did, which um, he was successful with uh, during the session this week, um, he got the state to finally uh, end its practice of suspending driver's license for unpaid court fees, uh, which is kind of a kind of it was always kind of a nutty way to do it because it meant that if you were too poor to pay your court fees, to say you're in court for some reason and had fees, then they would take away your driver's license for a while which means that you can't get to work. Now, if you get to work, it means you make money, and if you make money, then you can probably pay your court fees. And this, of course, really affected uh, disproportionately uh, poor African Americans. Well, that's ended now. That's been a good thing. One of the areas, though, where uh, the Black Caucus was happy with him, it didn't work, though, was, you know, that he wanted to add, Northam wanted to add some uh, special programs and funding for uh, minority business, and that didn't quite make it. Um, so there's kind of a split there. All in all, Northam did pretty well uh, on his vetoes. I don't think anything was, you know, any of his vetoes were overturned. And so if he can maintain this kind of steady-as-you-go plan, uh, meanwhile, the uh, big-time Richard Cullen, who's a big-time Richmond lawyer, is, has been hired by Eastern Virginia Medical School to investigate the yearbook page. And his findings are expected soon. That would probably be the next turn of the screw kind of situation. See what happens there with Northam. Right. Well, I know Republicans have talked about pretty openly how they, they plan to capitalize on the Democrats in disarray and these scandals coming into the fall elections. Uh, at the same time, if things aren't that chaotic come fall, what's that mean? Well, obviously, uh, Republicans uh, would want to, I mean, anyone would as a politician, want to keep the, keep the heat on uh, as long as possible, because prior to the eruption of these scandals, the Democrats are sitting pretty. I mean, they look pretty good for, um, um, you know, getting, finally taking over both, both um, chambers of, of you know, government, of the, of the legislature. And um, that would mean would be, you know, smooth sailing to initiate a whole lot of legislation that's been blocked for years. Now, that, of course, is not as cheerful as it, uh, as it seemed, say, around January. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, if you remember, the election's in November, and it's only April. So there's, there are a number of, you know, it's still pretty far away. And had this all happened, say, in September, I think you'd be, the Republicans would, could be more comfortable. But it's, you know, we still have a lot, long way to go. And if Northam can play this, this role of just keeping things quiet and plodding ahead, then he might work. It might work. I don't want to assume too much here, but it seems like in the Trump era, there's almost a new tack when it comes to political scandals. It's almost, uh, uh, you know what, that guy is changing the game on all this stuff, so we're just going to wait out a little while and see. Is that, are we seeing some of that? Well, I mean, there's been so much. I mean, there's so much going on with Trump and his um, oddities and his, you know, obvious lies, and it's going back and forth on stuff, his policy plans that change every, you know, maybe on a new cycle of every four hours. I mean, he's going to close the border with Mexico, then he's not closing the border with, uh, you know, everything. And, I mean, you know, there's one comedian talked about Trump having a, um, being on a special lying program on his cell phone. Uh, it's unlimited lying. 
And um, what this has done is it means that what, what, what is, had been important on Tuesday is no longer important on Wednesday. And, yeah, I think you're, you have hit a good point here. Now, whether this will be forever in politics, I don't know. But as long as Trump is around, um, there is a whole new uh, regime going on right here as far as cycles and, you know, how long something stays in the public eye. I want to turn in our last couple minutes here to an education-related story that came out of uh, the Virginia Mercury this week. Some counties, some localities in Virginia having serious teacher retention challenges due to low pay, they say, uh, particularly in lower-income, high-poverty districts in Virginia. Uh, Take me through the story. Well, this is not a news story by any stretch of the imagination. It's a very important story because for all of its um, pretensions um, and, and bragging about being a great education state, uh, the primary and secondary systems are really behind as far as retention and as far as pay and benefits. And there have been t- attempts to raise it, but in some places like, you know, poor you know, cities like Danville and Petersburg, um, you know, you've got vacancies galore. And people are don't have the money. I mean, they, they come out of college with big bills and big debt. They were taking a job that pays maybe starting up 25000 a year. And then they're, they're put into a very tough teaching environment where they're not expected just to teach, but to be the school nurse, to be the counselor, to be a police officer, community resource officer, and all of the above. Now, in other places like Albemarle County, where Charlottesville is, which is a very attractive place, it's very competitive to get a teaching job. But until this is really addressed, Virginia's going to be hurt because you know, it might have a great college system, but if, unless you have a, you know, a great um, under, you know, primary and secondary system to feed students into it, it's just not going to work out over the long term. You know, you, you have uh, districts up in Northern Virginia, uh, Albemarle, Charlottesville, and, and some other wealthier districts that are, are consistently ranked really high on, on national rankings even. Right. Um, it, but it almost ends up being like this two-tiered system in a certain respect when, I mean, philosophically, education has always been touted as this great equalizer, but we've got some localities that are not there. They can't even fill their positions, and some that are, you know, pushing out uh, top scholars around the country. Well, I know, and that's the thing. Just to keep it, there, there's a new militancy. I know there's a big rally in Richmond by teachers, public school teachers, in January. And don't forget, you had massive strikes over education in, in Los Angeles and in West Virginia in the past year or two. And that showed you wouldn't really have seen that that's before. So it's not just Virginia's problem. It's this two-tiered system that you're correctly bringing up is, you know, pretty national. All right, Peter, thanks so much. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. And now for a few short pieces from Virginia Public Radio. More than half a million people in Virginia with outstanding court fines are about to get their driver's licenses back. That's thanks to a budget amendment from Democratic Governor Ralph Northam that was approved yesterday by a Republican-led General Assembly. Michael Pope reports. 
Many people who get caught up in the court system find themselves in a downward spiral that concludes with their driver's license being suspended. They can't afford to pay all those court fines and fees, and then they find themselves illegally driving to work. That's more than half a million people in Virginia, mainly low-income and minority. Delegate Alfonso Lopez is a Democrat from Arlington who says that's unconscionable. Our current policy is, in my opinion, the equivalent of some kind of modern-day debtor's prison. We should never be punishing people for being poor. House Minority Leader Todd Gilbert says people who have not paid court fines should not have driver's licenses. They've broken the law. They've chosen not to pay the penalties for breaking the law. And now they find themselves digging themselves deeper into a hole because they refuse to make responsible decisions about their lives that will allow them to get out of this hole. Ultimately, lawmakers in the House and Senate agreed with the Democratic governor rather than the Republican House leader. That means those half a million people who can't afford to pay court fines, they're about to get their driver's licenses reinstated. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, I'm Michael Pope. Drivers along the Interstate 81 corridor are about to see higher gas taxes and new infrastructure improvements. Michael Pope reports. I have a whole 81 corridor plan. If you want me to roll it out, I can show it to you. That's Delegate Chris Hurst, a Democrat who represents the New River Valley. He's more than happy to roll out a series of maps showing hundreds of unfunded acceleration lanes, deceleration lanes, truck climbing lanes, curb improvements. When you have truck drivers that don't necessarily know the area very well, that are going at high rates of speed over serious grade changes, and then when they're going downgrade, they can't brake enough in time and they rear end a car and maybe you're the one driving that car. Lawmakers approved an amendment from the governor that will increase the gas tax along the ID1 corridor to fund those targeted infrastructure projects. They also approved an amendment from the governor increasing the diesel tax and truck fees statewide to improve infrastructure across Virginia. Republican Delegate Dave LaRock voted against the governor's amendments. This is a major tax increase, Bill. Let's, let's just call it what it is. This is an election year, so lawmakers had to balance concerns over raising taxes with a desire to improve roads. In the end, they chose higher taxes and better roads. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, I'm Michael Pope. Later this month, Richmond Raceway will host something new, its first eSports tournament. In case you missed the memo, eSports involve people playing video games in what is perhaps the fastest growing form of entertainment in the world. By 2020, one expert predicts esports will be worth more than the NCAA, which brings us to one of the first degree granting college programs in esports. Sandy Hausman has the details. Our world is worth fighting for. I can't wait to get started. Attackers incoming in 30 seconds. Overwatch is a video game with a complicated story. It features a multicultural cast of superheroes who, guns blazing, battle evil robots. Each character has a backstory and a wardrobe of cool, colorful clothing. Objective is under attack. Get on it. Many universities now have varsity teams playing this and other video games, and this fall, Shenandoah University will offer a major in esports management. Business professor Joey Garisiak is writing the curriculum. The president of the university over the summer was looking for new initiatives, new ideas, kind of take it to the next level, and I half-jokingly put in their eSports as a major. And she just looked at me and said, well, why don't we do that? And I said, well, nobody does that, Tracy. She said, well, why not? Yeah, really. In 2010, eSports competitions offered $5.5 million in prize money. Five years later, the pot had grown to $45 million, 
creating an industry in need of people who know how to organize live and online tournaments. You got broadcasters, you've got security, you've got all these personnel working that event, and you got to understand what the setup is like before that event actually happens and how to market that event. So that's how it's similar to other events like you would see in sports or a concert. This major seems perfectly natural to grad student Katana Jervis. Actually, I was named after a video game character in the franchise Mortal Kombat. Esports is growing really big. It's going to be the next million-dollar industry, and I was like, all right, cool. I'm on board with that. And for others like Kyler Apgar and Morgan Keeler, playing video games is a legitimate sport. It's competitive. You know, there's strategy to it. You don't get to compete at this level without putting in hours of structured practice. Really learning how to communicate and work with a team is what puts it up there with all of those other sports. Yeah, you have to be fit, you know, you have to be eating well, have your mind right, all, all the typical stuff. Which is why the major will also encompass science. Exercise physiology, how nutrition impacts performance, as well as injury rehabilitation, because there are injuries that are happening in esports, and I understand how to get people back to peak performance as quick as possible. And even for those who don't plan to major in esports, Josiah O'Sullivan and Katana Jervis say it's good preparation for many other fields. You know, they say that people who play video games make decisions 25% faster than those who don't. A lot of people think, oh, you're playing video games, they're rotting your mind. But really, there's a lot of thought that goes into playing at a competitive level. It really does work your mind and can prepare you for pretty much any field that you want to go into. Alumna Renee Segueco, who now works for Apple in Los Angeles, predicts graduates will have an easy time finding work. The tech industry in general, it just has so many positions. So definitely have an easy time finding a job. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I wish they had this program when I was in school. Finally, it appears the people who pay tuition have not complained. Grandparents might sniff at the idea of majoring in esports, but Sean Kelly and Jacob Dana say their parents are in. You know, they're proud of me for being on the team and they think it's cool. It's just like having a kid on a football team, but I mean. Less chance of concussion. Yeah. I play with my dad a couple times a week. Three, two, one. Shenandoah says it can accommodate about three dozen students in the fall, and already one senior has announced plans to stay an extra year on the Winchester campus to secure a minor in eSports. I'm Sandy Hospital. The deadline for new candidates running in primaries for the general election was last week. Michael Pope has the preview of the upcoming election cycle. Seven incumbent senators are facing primary challenges, and seven incumbent House members are also facing opposition from inside their own parties. Most of those are Democrats. There's clearly a movement further to the left. That's Stephen Farnsworth at the University of Mary Washington. As the new generation of politicians emerge, they are looking at a more liberal view of the Democratic Party than some of the more establishment Democrats who've been in Richmond for a while. Senator Dick Saslaw and Senator Linwood Lewis are both facing opposition from the liberal wing of their party, for example. But Quentin Kidd of Christopher Newport University says a similar situation is happening on the right. Just like moderate Republicans like Emmett Hanger, if he survives his challenge, will get pushed to the right. So ultimately, we'll see the effects of these challenges in the General Assembly session. Now, incumbents usually have the power to raise more money, and they rarely lose. But this upcoming primary season could end up being a test for both parties. Do voters think they're liberal enough or conservative enough? Or are voters willing to send moderate incumbents into a general election campaign this fall? I'm Michael Pope.
Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. And it's finally starting to feel like spring, so don't forget to get out there and enjoy your sunshine. My name's Eliza Wilson. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwenna Laszlo and Jay Pun. And this is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at TEEJ-FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week. I'm sugary sweet digital folk personality, Don Colorado. Hello yourself, I'm spiky head indie rocker, Jenny Blaze. And I'm her punk rocking half-sister, Tammy Tammy Blaze Blaze Johnson. Well, you look like a couple of ladies who are, as they say, Chevy Van ready. You look like the kind of guy who performs Jimmy Buffett medleys. (laughs) Wearing a paisley ascot. Only the wino and I know, ladies. You may find it hard to believe, but I, sugary sweet digital folk personality, Don Don Colorado. Colorado. Once roadied for the Bengals in a diaper. Sure, and I once dated all five members of X-Ray Specs <laughs> while I watched. Sounds like we're three people ready-made for triangulation. Like the WTJU Rock Marathon running from April 8th through the 14th on 91.1 FM Charlottesville. I know we'll be listening and calling in a pledge to 434-924-3959. Seven days of rock. Take it from me, sugary sweet digital folk personality, Don Colorado. Or me, spiky-haired indie rocker, Jenny Blaze. Or me, punk-rocking half-sister, Tammy Blaze Johnson. The WTJU Rock Marathon is bad to the bone. So ladies, what you do in April 8th? Any plans? Yeah, we're gonna steal your Chevy van. And burn it.